Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. So we have had a really incredible season Mm -hmm. on um, mental health and neurodiversity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, as we talk, we have mentioned several times over the course of the season, we could keep, we could we this season could go on endlessly if we wanted it to mm-hmm. because there are so many stories to tell. You know, people with people who are on the autism spectrum. We talked to someone with ADHD, but what is it like to be a woman who's diagnosed mm-hmm. with ADHD? We know that issues on the neurodiversity spectrum, it looks very different for for girls and women than it does for men and boys. We've talked about a range of mental health issues. Um, but again, it's sort of like each, obviously each person's story is going to be unique, but also like, okay, so we talked to someone who's like, um, who has OCD and then what is it like, there are so many different ways to be OCD or OCD shows up in, you know, a a range of different ways. Are we actually going to talk to every single person? And I think that's always the challenge with things like this, you know, with our seasons, which is we could just keep going forever and ever on one topic. Absolutely. And the other thing that we really couldn't even scratch the surface of if we tried in one season is the intersection of all of those things. How how does ADHD affect Black women? Not in terms of how they present, but how they have to navigate the world. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, like, cause we talked to a white man and that right. you, you have to think, you know, that those things impact people's lives really differently. What, one of the things I think is really interesting now that we're on what season we can always revisit seasons, the themes of these seasons as we move forward. Right. So we speak to someone with a really compelling story that wants to share with us. We can absolutely go back and say, Hey, this is, uh, you know, a season four throwback. Our our goal is to tell the stories of the people, you know, to have pe- no. Actually, I would say say wrong. Our goal is to give people a place where they can tell their own stories. Um, and so that it's like there's no statute of limitation on stories. We were going to do something we hadn't done before, and interview each other up and put ourselves in the season but we're actually going to be guests and we'll see how this goes. Cause guests in our own podcast, guests in our own podcast. And we've never done it before. So we'll see how it goes. Maybe that's true. Maybe it'll just uh, crash and burn, but 
you know, talking about neurodiversity and mental health and mental illness, it just is really clear that this affects all of us. And so we wanted Mm -hmm. to put our money where our mouth is, right? Essentially. So I guess, you know, I'll, I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay. Because if you're feeling ASCII, I'm I'm feeling ASCII and I would, I would like to say that one of the things is um, just very recently we passed your three-year anniversary. We did Jan- July or July, January, January of 2023. Yes. yes, and you know I've written about it. You've talked about it. Um, we had Dr. Ahmed on, mm-hmm. um, who was your who is your um, oncologist? oncologist yeah. Your oncologist. Yes. I got to give her, I got to give her a shout out because one, I just saw her. She's, she's awesome. It's really good to see her um, because we were chatting less about the health stuff and more about various things that are going on in their lives. But secondly, she is, um, she's in charge of Russia's new cancer center. So she took on a really big job. We've talked a lot about uh, mental illness, right? Someone mm-hmm. with depression. I, I know when when you interview me, it'll be about anxiety, bipolar, you know, serious mental illness like yeah. that. But what we really haven't talked about a lot is just mental health and mental wellness, and yeah. and how how everyday things that happen to us um, affect our mental wellness, our mental well-being. Yeah. I so think, if you'd be yeah. open to talking about your, uh, I, this is going to sound so stupid, but cancer journey. I knew um, you were going to say that. I know. I'm so <laughs> mad that I had to it's say right. what no, should I call it instead. I put it in quotes and I made a stupid voice out of it too, because <laughs> I knew it sounded stupid, but your, your experience with, with cancer, diagnosis surgery and then coming out of it um and how that affected your mental well-being and the people around you i think that would be really an interesting story to tell yeah sure i'm happy to talk about that so Uh, if you could start with the beginning because we have talked we we've alluded to um your cancer experience um but you've never really talked about it can you just start start with how did this all come together? Sure. So it actually goes back probably to 2012. My younger kid was about a year old. And like many women do post childbirth, I had an IUD in and um, it was fine for a little bit. And then I started having really, really heavy bleeding. And it was like so heavy that I had to go to the emergency room and like get fluids like I remember one time I was there and Justin was with me, you know, they had me lying down on the table and then I sat up and I almost fainted because my blood pressure was so low. Um, So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty rough. I mean, I was having the kind of bleeding where like I was changing my pad every hour. I was using a tampon, like I was bleeding on the way to the bathroom. Like it was, it was serious. The follow-up on that, there was a couple of things that follow up on that. One is that the doctor found that my IUD had shifted. So that bleeding was likely to have been caused by 
basically me having a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and not knowing it because of course I thought I was, you know, my birth control was working perfectly. Mm-hmm, yeah. In retrospect, you know, we're not sure if that's what actually happened. So the step, the next step from there is I went to see my, you know, OBG and she said, Hey, are you done having kids? And I said, yes. And she said, okay, this, you know, the solution to this heavy bleeding is a procedure called an ablation, which is basic, basically cauterization. And there were several ways you can do it. Um, and they rec- recommended a water ablation, which is to shoot heated water into, into the uterus and cauterize all the tissue. And so there wouldn't be any more bleeding. And that worked really well for a while. And then when we moved back here, when we moved back to Chicago, or when I moved back to Chicago, Justin makes a point that he never actually lived in Chicago. Um, <laughs> but when we both returned to the Midwest, there you go, California, I started having my periods started getting heavier again. And so how long did it between the ablation and when the bleeding started returning heavier? How long it was about that? about three years. 2012 or 2013 Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. around that time and then by 2016 we were I was having heavier and heavier bleeding um to the point where I once again I had to go to the ER and get fluids um and that I remember that I remember where you're like I have to go to the ER I think I had to take care of the kids Justin was going to take you to the ER because you were feeling faint exactly and after that I thought this isn't right this is just not right so I went to see my OBG here and she was like, you're right. That's not something that should be happening. And then she's like, okay, we're just do all these tests. So we did all of these tests. We did biopsy. We did this, we did that. I mean, I don't remember exactly all the tests we did, but basically you you did this, that, and a third thing. Yes. This, (laughs) that, and a third thing. That's right. You know, every single test that came back was basically said, we cannot say there is not a problem, right? They couldn't, yeah, they couldn't prove the null, null hypothesis using science language, right? But like, they also like, couldn't it, say that there was a problem. Whatever the tests were, were, were not conclusive to say there's not a problem. They didn't know if there was a problem, right? So that's, right. that's the weird thing about it. That's what leads to 2017, 2018. At the end of 2017, we'd done all this testing, nothing was showing up as conclusive one way or the other. So my OBG recommended I see Dr. Med, who is a oncology specialist. And I remember very clearly, I, and you've heard me say this before, Kosha, I went to see her and she said, well, there's a 5% chance it's this type of cancer. And the way we figured that out is to do a hysterectomy. Now, the good news is, if it's that type of cancer, the treatment is also a hysterectomy. Right. <laughs> and if it's not that kind of cancer, well, we did a hysterectomy, but you're not going to have any kids anymore. So it's like- But the hysterectomy like, was for diagnosis on that end. Right. And I like lost, you can imagine me ah. being, you know, sort of a, a feminist and being like, this is bullshit. Because I was like, so you're telling me that the diagnostic tool, that the- that the diagnostic tool and the treatment are exactly the same thing. I'm like, we don't, we don't do, we don't deal with other kinds of cancers that way. We don't go, Hey, we think you might have lung cancer. Let's take your lung out. The good thing is if you have lung cancer, we took your lung out. I remember calling Justin from the parking garage. And I was like, this is bullshit. I can't believe that this is how we treat. Yeah. Like we're still in the stone ages or the, 
you know, the middle ages with women's health and this garbage. And then I was like, of course I'm going to do it. You know, what if it is, but I still might have cancer. So I still have to get my uterus taken out. Yeah. That was a particularly weird diagnosis too. Right. So they did, they did, they did hysterectomy laparotic laparoscopically, you know, Dr. Ahmed had said, look, if we see any evidence of disease, we will go in and take your ovaries too, while you're on the operating table. And she didn't, the quick histology report didn't show anything. I remember that when you got that surgery, first of all, remember when I went to the wrong hospital to go see you? (laughs) That's right. So I, at the listeners, this is hilarious because at the time I lived a mile from Rush Hospital, which is in Chicago. I lived a mile from there. You lived in Oak Park. Yes. You said, I'm at Rush. And so I went to Rush Oak Park and you were actually at the hospital that was only a mile from me. (laughs) So I went up to the receptionist. I was like, oh, what room is she Richie in? And they looked and then they looked for Baxi Richie and they looked like, What's her phone number? Who's everything? And yeah. then I called or I texted you and I was like, what room are you in? And you said a room number that doesn't exist at Rush Oak Park. <laughs> right. And they're like, oh, sweetie, I think you're supposed to be <laughs> Rush in the city. And I was like, oh my God, that's a mile away from my house. <laughs> it was really, that was pretty really funny. funny. Yes. But you were, I mean, it was laparoscopic. It was, yeah. you were not even in there more than 24 hours. Did you leave the next day or two days? I'm not sure if I left the next day. They might have kept me until the next morning. Right, like two nights. Like you Yeah, two, two nights, nights, but like one full day just because they, but like all the stuff that you have to like check off the list. Yeah, but you felt good. You had energy. Oh, yeah. You, you no, were like I was sitting up and eating regular food. I was food totally fine. When I, I was totally fine. Right. I was, yeah, I felt totally fine. I didn't really have any, uh, my recovery was really easy. It was pretty easy. Um, so then I went back for my post-op checkup and that was that was a real shocker because what looked like yeah you no problem we don't know what it is but it wasn't that came back as well we're we actually are seeing nests of cancer cells starting to form i.e you we caught it super early you don't actually have tumors yet you don't have this cancer but we're starting it was just starting to form so whew, lucky yeah. you now, mentally, um, let me ask, uh, mentally, were you like, whoo, that was a blip? Did it shift your mentality? Did it shift your your vision, like, you know, your what you saw oh. of your life? Or was it like, blip, and now we're back? It was definitely a blip. And then I'm like, it wasn't a big surgery. I, my recovery time was relatively, I mean, it was not even relatively short. It was short. The effects on my body were really minimal. Um, and it didn't, it didn't feel like I had cancer at all. I was just like, Oh, I, that was lucky, man. We caught it just in time. Um, I didn't actually have it. Right. It was like this, Oh my God, the timing was amazingly perfect. So I was diagnosed with, um, a form of endometrial cancer called endometrial stromal sarcoma. The asterisk on this is that it's such a rare, it's a rare cancer amongst rare cancers. So there's really no consensus on how to treat it. Some people do this, some people do that. You know, it's kind of like 
throwing throwing stuff at the wall and sees what's going to stick and what's going to work. But one of the things that is known about this cancer is that it does not respond to chemo and it does not respond to radiation. So the way that you can, the best way to deal with it is to suppress growth because if you find any growth, you, the only way to deal with it is to excise it. You have to cut it out. And so if it's advanced enough, people are in for surgery a lot because there are two little you know, pockets popping up all the time. And the, the, there's suppressive medication you can take, which doesn't, you know, if it's like so far advanced, it won't do enough. At that time, the biggest challenge for me, I guess, or the biggest disruption to my life was I had to stop teaching spin for a couple of weeks. And I about that. Yes. Yeah. Well, because I loved it. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to get back teaching spinning. I took a couple of weeks. I wasn't traveling to my job for a couple of weeks. Um, I was working remotely, but I wasn't traveling to my job. And I had to take uh, this medicine, Megase, which is basically progesterone, um, that because I had my ovaries made me feel like I was in an insane PMS cycle all of the time. I really struggled with that. I talked to my doctor about six months in, Dr. Med, and she said, you know, okay, you do not have to take that. I also did have to go back for CT scans every three months. My understanding was that everything looked fine until about September or October of 2019. And then when I went to see Dr. Mad, when I went to see her again, she's, she's like, well, this looks kind of weird. And I said, is that a technical term? <laughs> and by this time, you know, I'd been seeing her every three months. So she and I were on good terms. We were really friendly. You know, we... Um, there's a lot of research that I just listened to a hidden brain episode that shows that like, if a patient and a doctor like trust each other and they have a good relationship, the outcomes are much better. So I had a great relation. I mean, we were friendly, we were joking, we were laughing. And when she said it looked weird, I was like, so is that a technical term? Can you Um, show that to me in the medical textbook? please? Yeah. And she started laughing and she's like, no, I want to follow up on this. So I did some follow-up testing and she, she wasn't satisfied with what was with what it looked like. Oh, no, I, I have to, I always forget this part. So I'd gone in for an exam. Yeah, I remember that. And she did every single exam comes, it, there's a seat, there's a follow up on a CT. And then there is a, you know, a sort of typical vaginal exam. And in the vaginal exam, she found a small lesion and she sent it out for testing. And it turned out to be this LGESS cancer. And she was like, Okay, now we got to look into it. That plus the CT together made her want to follow up more. And we did all this follow up. And then I think I took tamoxifen for two weeks. And that actually made my CTs look worse. And so she's like, we need to get you into surgery ASAP. And I remember asking her if we could do it either early in December, super early in December, or after my TED talk. Because I'm like, I've been preparing for this yeah. all year. Turns out it worked out fine. We did it in early January. Um, and that was that was a mind fuck. The results of that was a mind fuck for me. What the results showed from that procedure is that I had prob- I had cancer basically everywhere in my pelvic 
area and like my pelvic, you know, cage. And there was cancer in places where endometrial cancer should not have been. And so one, I was, you know, it's sort of like, it's like being told you're, it's, and I, I don't mean this disrespectfully to anyone who found out they were adopted. That's a, you know, but that's sort of the analogy I can think of, which is you think of yourself in one way, and then all of a sudden you find out, you know, just slammed onto you. Actually, all of that's not true. It was really, it was really destabilizing. And I was very lucky. Well, lucky and I will say I did so many burpees that while I was cursing the burpees while I was doing them, my recovery from even the laparotomy was really fast. I was out of the hospital in five days. I had surgery on a Monday. No, I had surgery on a Tuesday. I was out on Saturday. I had taken showers. I tied my own shoes. Like I was, was off all the drugs. Didn't even need Tylenol or ibuprofen. Like my recovery was really amazing on that. And that wasn't even tip. I mean, that was not typical recovery. I was like all the ab work. I'm so glad I did all those stupid burpees, but that was, you know, that was January of 2020 and the next year and a half or two years, it was this mishmash of all kinds of things for me that really affected my mental health. I mean, there was recovery from surgery. There was dealing with my identity. There was dealing with the side effects of the surgery, which is I had had both of my ovaries removed and I went into medical menopause immediately. So I was dealing with all the effects of having every menopause symptom happening literally all at once. Something that would have been, yeah, spread out for three years, maybe, or five years or seven years happened within six months. Well, and let's go back to the tamoxifen situation is you found out because of that and when you actually, when they actually did the histology of the cancer, that this is uh, estrogen seeking, yeah, cancer. Yeah, it right? grows in the presence. It grows of estrogen. in the presence of estrogen. So and progesterone of, is suppressive. So a lot of women who are going through menopause slowly, to your point, because yeah. it, it doesn't come all at once. For those of you who don't know a lot of times you can you can do things to boost your estrogen yep. in order to make the transition into and through menopause yeah. easier and that's yeah. up to and including hormone replacement therapy yes you because your cancer grows in the presence of and craves estrogen could not even do that no i couldn't do that i couldn't do any like estradiol creams or anything that they um, topical, anything. I couldn't do anything. And then on top of it, taking a fairly high dose of progesterone, which suppresses any, uh, you know, any residual estrogen that's floating around because estrogen also come, you know, is made through fat tissue. So it's like such a high dose of progesterone that like nothing, there's no effect of estrogen at all anywhere in my body. And that, that was physically, it was very tough. I think there's a lot of psychological stuff that came from that afterwards that came from that over the year and a half. But, you know, I think it's very hard for me to tease out all of the, the effects on my wellness and my headspace in particular that this surgery had, because two months later, 
we were in lockdown. Right. So I went from thinking everything's fine in October to six months later, being a cancer survivor that had really widespread cancer in their pelvis. Um, I went into medical menopause and I was now homebound. Right. I am such an extrovert that I had to be homebound for a month already. And then I got this little blip of time where I could like be out and about, but I wasn't totally feeling myself. I was still right. recovering. And then, then I was home and then so was everyone. And I remember, you know, that little blip of time that you were able to be out, you struggled too, because you weren't hundred percent fine, but you really wanted to be. Yeah. And so you were like, you were getting mad at yourself. You were getting really mm -hmm. self-frustrated with like, well, yeah. I should, you should all over yourself. Right. Yeah. Like I should be able to do this and I ought to be able to do this. And being reminded that you were six weeks, not even six weeks post-surgery, which yeah. I know I did. I had to remind you. I know your doctor had to remind you. I know Justin had to remind you. My therapist was, had to remind you. Yeah, your therapist had to remind you. You had to remind yourself. It was it was the thing that you needed to hear to to like be able to kind of ratchet down. But also there was a part of you that got angry because you were like, that shouldn't matter. Like I should be able to do this stuff. And you wanted to be able to do that stuff. Yeah. It's, you know, as I've unpacked this over the last couple of years, the, the, the lights, the flip, the switch flip from being like, Oh, you don't have cancer to being like, you've been living with cancer for a long time. And in fact, you had pretty invasive cancer. And now it means all of these things. You know, that was such a huge shift that I, I'm sure I overdid it in my recovery because I needed to feel like myself. Nothing about me felt like me in that, in that time. Right. I didn't, I didn't feel like myself. I felt like I had lost myself. The me that I was, was gone. There was no, and then I didn't know who I was. I really was struggling with my identity for about two years. And I think the complication with COVID one is there are things that fill me up that I could not do because it literally might kill me or somebody else. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was I didn't have the space to process what I was going through with four people in the house all the time, people trying to go to school, do their jobs blah, 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 stress about the pandemic. How the hell am I going to get groceries? You know, all of this stuff. I didn't have any mental space to process that. Was there I any just... part of that that you, like you didn't want to process any of it because it was too scary? Oh, absolutely. I'd say I couldn't. I could not look at the post-op report for a year. I couldn't even look at it. I couldn't, the enormity of what it said, what I, you know, what I absorbed from you and other people from Dr. Ahmed, from talking to you, from talking to Justin, from our cousin, Sheetal. I didn't, I couldn't, it was too much. It was too scary. And Dr. Ahmed and I have talked and talked and talked, you know, theorized about how could an endometrial cancer 
end up on my ovaries, end up in my colon, end up all over my, you know, sort of my lower momentum, my my pelvic area. How could that have happened? Given what we found in 2017 and the only explanation that makes sense is that in 2012, when I had my ablation, which Mm -hmm. was a water ablation, it, that it is probably starting then and the use of water shot some of those cancer cells out through my fallopian tubes onto my ovaries and into my pelvic cavity. Okay. Right. The other big scary piece of that, that was hard for me to look at knowing the stats is that I should have been dead. I'd been living with that cancer since 2013. And the, it's, if you don't catch it early, do you know, the, the five-year life expectancy is pretty low. Well, so I did my Enneagram five thing. And when Mm -hmm. I found out, you know, that you were, you know, your cancer was, was really back or more present, I would say like more obvious, because I don't know if it actually ever went away. You know, I did a lot of research and and looked into this very, very, very rare cancer. And the only thing I could find was when it, it, like a chart somewhere on Mm -hmm. like a medical website, right? Not like a forum, but a chart somewhere that when that cancer, when ESS is localized, which is what we thought the first time when it was just the nest of cells inside the uterine wall, uh, the five-year survival is like 98% right? You find it early, you're pretty good. If it is regional, which is local or region specific in your pelvic cage, it drops to 93% over five years. Still not bad. Still fantastic for such a rare and insidious cancer. If it had crossed your diaphragm into your abdominal wall or into your abdominal cage, that would have dropped to 60 something percent. So essentially you would have gone from, yeah, you're going to survive this. We're going to get through this. If even a nest of cells had crossed your diaphragm, it would have been 50-50, right? I mean, I'm, right. I'm putting out, I'm, you know, painting with a very white yeah. brush. But that I think for me was when Dr. Ahmed came back and told us like how widespread it had been. And she said she cleaned it out and it looked really great. And everything looked great. But the question was like, okay, so we went from the blip, as we talked about mm-hmm. minutes ago, to like, oh, it's great. We caught it early. Not a problem. She's right. on her way. Everything's going to be the same. To So you're telling me I almost lost my sister? Right? Like that, I had yeah. not thought about that for a second, that that was a possibility. I don't think any of us thought that because you wouldn't go from what happened in right. the initial you know, findings in 2017 to this, you wouldn't go there. You would go, Oh, we, we, there was a spot over here that we missed and it's showing up again, or there's actually nothing going on. And it happened to be that during the surgery, we had some, whatever, right. That it was actually localized to the vaginal canal, but you would not go to, yeah, you have a necrotic ovary and it's like spread all over it. It's you have two inch tumor in your colon and you wouldn't go there. Yep. That how widespread it was, plus the fact this had probably been going on since 2013. So 
right? I had already passed a five-year survival rate. Right. right. I mean, it was, this was yeah, 2020, right. seven years. Yeah. And I think this, one of the scarier things for me was that, and, and try if you're listening to this, tell me if I'm wrong, but the, when I was first diagnosed in 2017, one of Trayu's residents or co-residents or the head resident or mm-hmm. someone, um, his mom was diagnosed with the same thing. Mm. And when I had surgery in 2020, that woman had passed away. Oh, wow. So I was kind of living with that in my head too. Yeah. Just, I, I should, you know, there's, I still go come walk around with a little bit of like, I'm fucking lucky to be here. So um, let's, let's talk about that a little bit because you hear a lot, you know, and we know people that like the, the man who uh, officiated my wedding, for example, yeah. this is one of the examples. He was, when we were growing up, when you, we knew him, he was a hard ass. He was really strict. He was mean. And yeah. then he had a massive heart attack and man, did that man change? He yeah. suddenly became like a yogi, right? Yeah, like he was, right. he, he just was like zend out and he's like, it's zen, fun. chill, yeah. like, oh, it'll all be okay. So yeah. you hear a lot of stories about these life-changing events that also yeah. then change your mental fortitude and the and your kind of like whole way you look at the world. I can't imagine that you woke up the next day or you got home and you're like, oh my God, I'm so lucky to be here. How did you get to any kind of acceptance and peace and even like joy in your life? So it was not easy. It was not easy. I mean, the first year I was, I guess the first year I was kind of in denial. I mean, I couldn't really deny it since I'd had surgery, but I was like, that was that whole, like, I'm just going to be myself. Okay. It's Mm -hmm. over. I got to take this meds, but you know, I'm just going to live my life and all right. So I have, you know, I'm in these menopause symptoms, but they're going to go away. And I'm just going to pretend like, I'm just going to, I'm going to move forward as if they're minimal on a grand scale. They are minimal, right? if somebody saw me walking down the street in at any point or nobody would know that I had, am a cancer survivor, didn't lose my hair. I didn't drop a bunch of weight. I didn't, you know, nothing. I didn't go through radiation or chemo. So I didn't have any of the outward signs. So nobody would know. And I was like, I'm just going to, I'm myself. I would need to be myself. And so I think that's where the denial came in. But, you know, about a year after 2021, I started to really wrestle with what the fallout of, you know, what the, what the effects of the cancer, the surgery, the medication, all this stuff. And I imagine this is true of a lot of people is on one hand, you're, I was genuinely, genuinely thankful to be alive. I, I mean, in in October of 2019, when I was facing the fact that like, oh, maybe my cancer's back and it could be really serious. And I'm still tearing up now thinking about it. I'm like, I have so much I want to be here for. I have two kids. I have, you know, nieces and nephews. I have this life planned with my husband. I have these great relationships with my friends, my sisters, my family. I don't, I don't want to miss it. I want to be here for that. So on one hand, I'm genuinely grateful that something that could have taken me out well before, like something that could, that 
could have been found in a stage where it's like, we can't do much for you. Did not end up that way. So I'm so, so terribly grateful to whoever the God powers that be that not only am I here, I have suffered very few negative side effects. You know, on the, on the grand scale, I take the stupid annoying medicine that I fucking hate. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it comes with some un, unpleasant right. side effects. Right. But there's not anything where I'm like, it's really impeding my life. On the other hand, and I think all of, you know, a lot of people feel this way. Probably everyone feels this way. I remember thinking so many times, this was not part of my fucking plan. This was not how it was supposed to be. This is not what my life is supposed to look like. It, it wasn't just a surgery. It was like, I wasn't supposed to be in menopause at 44. All of the shit that I'm dealing with, this is not supposed to be who I am. This is not who I am. I don't want this. I'm mad. I'm mad. Like on one hand, I'm super grateful for the universe. And then the other hand, I'm like, fuck you universe. And I, you know, I kept having to remind myself because I think people often feel, and I never did. I have to say, I never did say, why me? Because the universe doesn't fucking care. Well, why I've, not? I've, I was just, I've heard you say that. Can you say that one more time? Because you have said, other people have said, yeah. why me? And then why you me? say, and I say, why not me? Mm-hmm. What is so special about me that I should be spared from some kind of major illness or major disease. I mean, my family, my friends, they think I'm super special. They love me, but my neighbor would pick someone else. They would pick me over someone else in their family, right? right? Just like we would pick them. I like my neighbors, but if I have to pick between you and my neighbor, I'm picking my neighbor to get sick. Same for everyone that did ground me a little bit to say, okay, well, why not me? There's nothing so special about me that I shouldn't get sick. But my, the core of my issue, the core of my rage, it was rage. It wasn't even anger. I was, I had a lot of rage, which was, this is not what I'm supposed to be like. This is not who I am. Fuck this bullshit. It, it, I struggled with that for a year. Really, I was, and it, unfortunately for everyone else who I was living with, who could not get away with uh, from me because we were all in this house, they, they had to deal with me being rageful, rageful about my life generally. Right. right? And then, so like, not only am I dealing with that, but we're still in fucking COVID. Yeah. I still yep. can't go out. I still can't do fun things. So I'm right. sitting in a hot box in my house, dealing with all the bullshit that's being, you know, a husband who's working his butt off kids who are still in, you know, remote school Mm -hmm. and dealing with my own identity crisis around what the fuck is this? This isn't how I, I planned it. You know, and I kept saying like, oh yeah, well, um, men make plans and God laughs, which is absolutely true. And still it wasn't part of my goddamn plan. Right. And you know, I mean, and then of course I've heard you say, I'm sure you've heard me say before. It's like, it's not like anyone plans to have cancer or to have a heart attack or whatever. They're not like, all right, I'm gonna schedule in for this time. And then it needs to, I'm ready, I'm ready. It's scheduled, right? It doesn't work that way. And it's surprising how, no matter how many times you intellectualize all that bullshit, the stuff in your heart, the sort of more like emotional parts of your brain are still like, this is bullshit, I hate this. And I hate 
And I, then you get like pissed at other people who are like having a, you know, not having the experience. Right. How much, it must feel nice not to have cancer, right? Like it just, <laughs> it must feel nice not to be in medical menopause. Right. Right. Like my sex drive went from being like pretty high, normal to high Healthy, to being right. completely nothing. And that was a bummer. I, that's putting it mildly. Right. No, that affected yeah. a lot of my relationship with my husband of course. and my own identity about who I was and what kind of person I was and all this stuff. It just, it was so, so destabilizing. And I spent probably a year and a half sort of wrestling with the, like, I'm okay. I'm not okay. I'm okay. I'm not okay. Well, like you said, like you're really of two minds one being, oh my God, I'm so grateful to be here and genuinely. And then the other side being like, but I'm so pissed. And, right. but like those two minds are so diametrically, it, it, seemingly diametrically opposed. They're not, but right. they're also very different. So it must, like, I can see that it's destabilizing because when you let yourself be angry, it feels like you're not grateful to be here. The two, are not mutually exclusive. And then you're like, well, I'm not being grateful enough to be yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I had a lot of internal tension about that. Like, how am I, how am I supposed to think about this? Or how am I supposed to approach the other? Will I ever be at peace? You know, the other thing that was really, really hard for me is, um, the fact that after I had surgery and you know, I was on progesterone, so yay, it's the pregnancy hormone. Well, what does that cause you to do? It causes you to gain a lot of weight. And the combination of the medicine plus being in menopause meant that I put on 25 pounds pretty much right away that have been ridiculously resistant to any kind of change, any kind of movement. And two weeks before I had surgery or one month before I had surgery, I did this TED talk and I felt it's, I mean, I remember the clothes just because I remember thinking this, everything I was wearing felt so good. And it wasn't really like the clothes, but it was like, I felt like my best self in that moment. And it was fleeting. And I think that was also a really that was a very, and it still is sometimes a very difficult thing to come to terms with, which is this cancer surgery fucked up my life. I was in, I, I was in my, I was in my best space. I felt good about my body. I was working out. I, you know, I felt like I could participate in life. I wasn't like, I don't eat anything. You know, I could go out and have dinner with you and have drinks and like live a normal life. And I felt really good in my body. Right. And weight had been something I'd struggled with since I was eight, seven or eight years old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 40 years of that for a brief moment, right. I felt like I had it in my hands and then it just slipped out. And that was another thing I had to come to terms with, which is what if that, what if I can never get back there? What if I can never get back there? What does that mean? How do I come to terms with that? So I spent, you know, I probably spent, and I still do sometimes really struggle with, it's not fucking fair. It's not fair. It's not, 
just the like the bigger the bigger thing I struggle with is it's not fair. You know, like on one hand, I'm like, why not me? And on the other hand, I'm like, why me? Yeah. I mean, I. One is incredibly philosophical, right? One is very like, well, in the grand scheme of things, things happen. Bad things happen to good people really all the time. You know, I'm someone who it's like, no, this whole like there's a lesson to be learned or or, you know, um, everything happens for a reason. To me, I'm like, you go fuck yourself. Right. Like that's not that not everything has to happen for a reason and i also give maya shankar gave, gives the example where she's like let's say you're texting while driving and you hit someone on a bike and then you go the driver or the texter is like oh my god that just scared the crap out of me right yeah. that happened for a reason and the reason was to teach me not to text while i'm driving well why did the universe then make the biker get hit what yeah lesson? right like, was he just a pawn in your lesson? Like that's, yeah. you know, you're right to assume that there's some like big picture plan. And, right. But you know, every, I don't, I don't think that at all. So like, right. yeah, on the philosophical level, you're like, well, why yeah. not me? But on that every day I have to live through this. Right. I mean, you're really playing ping pong with these two major yeah. issues. I do want to take a step back because you and I have talked about this a lot. Let's talk about the anger a little bit. Anger seems, and, and not just for you, but it's a really easy as not. It's, it's, it's like a feel good, go-to negative emotion. It, it's an emotion that people go to because it feels powerful or it feels purposeful. Yeah. Can you talk about oh, your yeah, anger with the universe with the cancer with your body with your family and how did you how did you because anger is also it's a consider a negative emotion so it does weigh on you did um, you have to let that go did you have to function through it like how did you navigate the anger the rage yeah so it's it's interesting to talk about anger i I'm very comfortable with anger. It it's actually doesn't weigh on me. I'm very comfortable with anger. And for those of you who are listening, who are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a type eight. So take that for what it is. I'm very comfortable with anger. And I anger is, you know, I talk about that in a lot of different ways. I talk about it like holding you know, in the in the first Wonder Woman movie, Wonder Woman movie, where she's got the lightning and she's like She's got it like, and she's like kind of playing with it. That's a little bit what it feels like where I'm like, this is like the energy running through my veins. I'm comfortable with this. And I can almost mold like there's it, potential can, here. It's potential yeah, energy. Like, well, I can use this when I want to, mm-hmm. or I can just muck, you know, I can just play with it, but it's here for when I need it. I've also talked about it as being like this big ball where I just like compress it and compress mm-hmm. it. And that's usually when I'm really, really like really angry where I can take all of my anger and compress it in ball and just throw it at somebody and explode it. Sort of the more loving pro-social way of me thinking about my anger is it's a sword and a shield that I use the sword to cut through bullshit and the shield to protect people from the bullshit, right? And it's particularly useful in my job. And I would um, like to point out that you said protect people, not protect yeah. myself. No, protect, protect you, people. protect people. And right, I have been behind that shield. So I do know that it 
it is used to protect whoever you're trying to protect at that time. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Cause not about me. It's about using my anger to, to help other people, whether that's, you know, cutting through bullshit or cutting people down um, when they need to be knocked down a couple of pegs or creating shelter and cover for people who need it. It's very easy to manage anger when there's a place to direct anger. And, and I will, I will asterisk this and say, over the last couple of years, one of the things I've also been figuring out, wrestling with, dealing with, you know, trying to incorporate more into my into my approach to the world is anger's anger's motive for me, anger is motivating and it's protective. If I'm angry at somebody, that means it's their fault. They need to fix it. You're doing something wrong. And if that you means, would only do it my way. Right. Or if you would just do better or <laughs> yeah. whatever it is, don't do that thing. Or, And it's particularly true in personal relationships, which is like, if I'm angry at you and Kosha, you and I have had a conversation mm-hmm. like this about, you know, you telling me some stuff and you're struggling with, and I'm getting angry. I'm getting mad at you. And it's not that I'm actually mad. It's because I feel helpless and scared. And if I just get, if I make this your fault and you're doing something wrong, then I don't, then it's, you're going to fix it. And then I don't have to feel that way. Right. And so a a lot of my, I would say my cancer has really also helped me deal with that, which is there are times and places in which anger is appropriate, but using anger as a way to avoid feeling vulnerable, like vulnerable feelings, anger is, you don't feel vulnerable. It's a righteous feeling of like, Fix it, make it better. It's an active um, emotion. It, it, it's it very is active. Active. Um, whereas vulnerable feelings like sadness, loneliness, you know, despair, helplessness, loneliness. You, what are you supposed to do about that? You, if I'm feeling disappointed, or if I'm feeling lonely, if if Justin's in, you know, out of town for work for six weeks because that's what his job needs, I'm lonely. I'm sad. I miss him it's easy to be angry at him because then it's his fault. He needs uh-huh. to do something different, but it's not actually his fault. He's not doing something wrong. Same thing when you were struggling uh-huh. and I was getting angry at you, but I'm not angry at you, I, but I want to make it your fault so that you do something differently. And then I don't have to feel scared. Right. And so the cancer, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Who am I going to be mad at? How can I be, who is there to be mad at in, with the universe? I have cancer. That sucks. I'm super angry. I'm about what it has meant for me, but there's no one to blame. I mean, if anyone, I have to blame myself because my fucking body fucked it up. <laughs> right? Nobody did it like, to where, me. Where are you going with that? <laughs> right. But it is also like when I was really angry at my body, when I was going through infertility, you were the one who was like, so you're going to be mad at your organ level functioning. Exactly. And you're not mad at your organs. You're mad at the cancer, which is actually not part of your body. So it's it's my cell. My cells are fucking it up. They can't, they can't get their shit together and they're just doing it. They're just going crazy. And, but that's like, if I'm going to be mad at anyone, it's me. There's no, and I can't, even I didn't do it. 
right? It's not like I'm like, okay, fuck it up this way. So, because <laughs> you would have done it differently if you actually I would have done it so it. differently. Um, so, you know, it's like that was a big that was a big piece of learning to deal with anger and rage, which is like sometimes you got to the only way you know emily when emily bleaker was on she said you know the only way sometimes the only way is through you can't go around it you can't go over it you can't go under it you have to go through it and i went through it and i really really i, I wrestled with it for two years and truthfully last september october i um it didn't kind of so we're really, talking like six months ago yes yeah, six months okay. ago it didn't fully come to a close until this past fall I um had gone to a to a weekend away with my girlfriends which I, we do every twice a year we've doing it for almost 12 years now I remember one of my friends made a joke about well it's not like I you know have cancer and I fucking lost it and I was like yeah I know you don't. And I know you guys don't think of me as a cancer survivor, but I actually still have, you know, I'm still in, I'm still in that, like, am I totally in remission stage or what the hell's going on? I'm, I'm still dealing with it every day. I still take these pills twice a day, every day. I still go in for CTs. I still don't know what's happening. Every, you know, I'm like, I'm still super anxious. And I haven't, I hadn't hit that mark, the three-year point, right. which is what I didn't hit. Ever, from 2017 to 2020, I didn't hit the three-year mark. So this was kind of a big deal. And I fucking lost it. And I started crying. And I, you know, my, my friends known them for a long time. They were really great and really supportive. But I remember thinking like, all this stuff is wrong in my life. And that's not who I am. I don't know who I am anymore. And they were, I think the best thing they all kind of said to me is, you're who, you're you you're still Shay Lushi, right? And I think to hear that from, there was, there was a particular way that it was said to me, like, cause other people have said that too. It's not like, you know, you said that, but there was some, some way that they kind of just went like, get your shit together. Like in a way, that's kind of what they said, like, get your shit together. Remember who you are. Right. And that it really, I, maybe I was ready to hear it at that point, or it was, I was particularly vulnerable. So it sunk in, but it, that really made, that was like a turning point for me, I would say, which is, yeah, I still, I still have shit I'm dealing with. You have to remember who you are. Yeah. And, you know, and I think part of that is realizing that every single day, we can shift our trajectory in any way that mm -hmm. yes, the, the trajectory you were on in 2017 and 2019 was it, it shifted, right? Like yeah. you're not on that same trajectory now, but you're still Shailushi on Shailushi's trajectory right. of life. You're but, not a different person. It's right. just a different trajectory. Yeah. And that, that things like, being in medical menopause and, you know, the effect on my sex drive and the effect on, you know, this weight gain and all, you know, all of this stuff that comes with being in these meds and blah, 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 that, that doesn't define me. They're my circumstances for not who I am. Sometimes you just need to hear it a certain way. 
people, you can hear it from all kinds of sources or all different ways, but there's sometimes you just need to hear it in a certain way. And it like, you know, rings your bell and you're like, oh my God, I didn't. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I, you know, I, I remember thinking in the last couple months, like, no, I'm still me. And I got some, you know, I have some things I'd like to change and some things I'm going to have to deal with. And, but I'm not, not me. I'm not, not me. My prognosis looks really good. I could have been dead five years ago. Could have been dead three years ago. And 10 years after I probably, you know, probably started spreading, I'm fine. You're still here. I'm still, not only am I still here, I'm fine. I'm doing like, okay. You're thriving. So yes. I'm thriving, right? I've taken this stupid medicine. Oh, well, I've taken stupid medicine. Right. I, you know, I, I have to work a little harder for, for, to have a sex drive. Oh, well, a lot of women have to do that all the time. Right. I think <laughs> that's, that's not unusual to me. And we're all headed that way as women, we're all headed into that space or we're dead. And would I rather be dead? No, I would rather not be dead. I would rather be struggling with the crappy side effects of medicine and menopause than be dead. I have a lot of shit I want to be here for. And I think what has really helped give me peace, right? That, that, internal fighting that I was experiencing around identity and should I feel grateful and am I really mad is that I don't feel angry about my circumstances anymore. Sometimes I'm like, that's a bummer. That sucks. But I have really feel like I've come to peace with like, this is my life right now. But guess what? I'm still here. Not only am I still here, I'm st- I feel fine. I'm great. Right? Like this is a little bit like when you know, when dad had that surgery yeah, right. and he was like, I'm just so tired. And <laughs> I was like, dad, you were in septic shock, man. People like lose their eyesight and they lose limbs. You're lucky. The only thing you have is tired. You know, me saying that to dad at that time, he was like, oh, like it was a bit of a reality. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, you're tired and you can't do 12 surgeries a day. You can only do three. Yeah. That's too bad. You could be blind. That you could do zero surgeries if you're blind, Dad, right? And that was kind of a bit of it. You had that to was, do it for. I had to, to have that that version of like, hey, you could be blind. Someone could be like, so you're so what? Like you're still you, and 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 take it for. Don't like don't sit and like, like, be pissy about the fact that your life isn't exactly how you wanted it. To, you that your life didn't go according to the plan that no one else signed up for. And it really helped that it came from someone who's also struggled with health issues, several health issues. So I was like, oh, okay. That's, you know, right. Like slap, slap, like get your head in the game. It was a little bit of a shoulder shake, right? Yeah, it absolutely was. Um, And so like after three years of being really struggling and feeling like, I don't know who I am and what the hell am I doing? And this isn't fair. And like all of that, it's not illness so much, but I, my mental health was really Right. All over the place. Yeah, some your days mental I, well-being was, was yeah. precarious. I Some days I was great. Some days I was miserable. I was unpredictable. Um, I certainly was not dealing with my anger and it was coming. It wasn't, I wasn't like necessarily like taking it out on people, but it did leak out all over the place. Right. And now I'm like, 
you know what? Okay. But I get to, I get to be here, right? All the stuff that I really wanted to do with my life or all the stuff I thought, oh, I'm going to miss that. Right. I'm going to miss my kids graduating. I'm going to miss one of both of my kids getting married. I'm going to miss spending time with you and my nieces and my nephew and, you know, this, this vacation we took in January with, you know, our family and all that stuff that like the stuff that really matters. Right. I think, and that was a bit of it too. Like what really matters in my life? Mm -hmm. 25 pounds. I mean, would I like to have that go away? Yes. Is that really something that I want to like put my stake in the ground and be like, this is a thing that matters to me? No, it doesn't. But it was, it was not, I mean, it was hard. I really, right. I think it's the hardest thing for me is feeling like I didn't know who I was. I, I felt like my, like all the pieces of the puzzle in like the picture, like this is a Shalusha picture and all the pieces got mixed up and I couldn't figure out how to put them back together again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and, and some of them didn't fit. Some of it, there were pieces missing. People didn't fit together the way I thought they were supposed to. You know, it's like, it wasn't even the same puzzle. And I was trying to solve, oh. I was trying to solve the new puzzle with the old puzzle. It's not the same puzzle, but there's still this, right? If you're solving, if you have a puzzle of yourself, it can, it's not gonna be you unless the main pieces are there. Right. And, and some things will be there and some things won't be there. And maybe they'll put something new in there, but where, where's like, where's the core, where's the core of my identity and like getting over the fact that like, again, like I keep saying, I'm still me and mm -hmm. all the stuff that like showed up or left in the last couple of years doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with who I am. Right. The core. Yeah. It's circumstance, yeah. which Look, everyone's circumstance is going to change. And, you know, every woman on the planet, basically, they either go through menopause or they die. So yeah. that's not a thing that any woman gets, right? If, if you're going to live long enough, you don't get to escape that. It just happened to be that I wasn't ready. Again, I keep saying like reconciling, if that wasn't my plan, the universe doesn't fucking care about your plan. Yeah. So, who, uh, you're much better at this than I am. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, just there's so many directions we can continue going. And you yeah. and I, I think the way you kind of put a bow on your experience to kind of where you are now, it sheds light on where you see yourself going. Yeah. You know, we said we're gonna we're gonna sit in the speaker's chair. You're in the speaker's chair today, and we're gonna put our money where our mouth is. So we're going to do what we do with all of our guests yeah. and I'm going to share, or I'm going to ask you <laughs> what you usually ask yes. the penultimate question is what advice would you give to, let's say yourself in 2012 or is going through surgery and saying like, this isn't fucking fair. The number one, the first piece of advice I would give is something that I don't know if Dr. Med said it on our podcast, but she has said it to me is that this, that there's a sort of myth that 
women should be having, you know, really heavy bleeding is fairly normal for women into menopause as they go into menopause. Every time I've heard anyone say that, I'm like, just get it checked out. Just get it checked out because I think it's such a, what I have is such a rare, a rare cancer of rare cancers. It often, if you, you know, if you're just sort of a run of the mill OBG, you know, you don't necessarily think about it, but get it checked out and trust your instinct. So that's the one thing I'd say, you know, on that level, think the second thing, and that's, I think true of any sort of body issue, medical mm -hmm. issue where you're like, this doesn't seem right. Like trust your instinct. Um, it's particularly true of women too, because doctors tend not to listen to women. So, and people of color. And people of color, push it. Yeah. Um, trust yourself and trust what your body's telling you. The second thing, you know, as you, as we move away from like, how do you deal with the health issue to like, so now you're dealing with the health issue. Um, the three things I sort of have picked up from this is number one, therapy. It, whether or not you are a person who is outwardly like an external processor or an internal processor, it is not good to keep that stuff in your head. It's just not, I think. And, and I've appreciated my therapist's ability to reflect back to me some of the stuff I'm saying, which is sometimes ridiculous. And I can see it's ridiculous when she says it to me. And I'm like, oh, that's, come on now. It's like, Shilushi, you have to, I, calling bullshit on myself like that's really right. dumb. like but you needed someone else to right. say it for you to call bullshit on yourself right or to to give it to someone to hold right mm. um and that's best friends can are often very good at that on some level but when it comes to something like that you know something like i'm dealing with all this pain and anger and resentment and because my life isn't how I thought it was going to look. That's a little bit much to ask your best friends to hold on to for you. You're saying like, give it to someone to hold whose job it is to hold that. Exactly. Exactly. So like you can sort of offload your rage or offload your disappointment or off whatever it is. Right. It's, and that person will bring it up for you to deal with when it's time to deal with it. Um, but it's certainly not good in your, for you to hold on to internally. And then patience which is I suck at patience. Anyone who knows me knows that I am probably one of the least patient persons, people on the planet. I want things. I don't necessarily want things now, but I want things done. Yeah, right? Right. I'm like, if it takes six months, let's get it done in six months. Right. I don't expect something to happen now when it needs to take six months, but I'm also like, I don't like to dilly dally. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, all right, it's going to take six months. Let's go. I'm a let's go person. Yeah. And I definitely rushed it. I rushed my recovery. Um, and there were, you know, we talked about there are reasons for that. I rushed it. I, I tried to be, I tried to be better mm -hmm. before I was better. And I think a lot of frustration came from that too, which is again, this internal tension of like, I'm supposed to be like this, but I'm not like this. Um, and I want to be better, but I'm not better. I shouldn't be tired, but I am tired. That was that patience. Because I, 
completely underestimated the the psychological toll that a big surgery and a big diagnosis would have on me. I really did. As particularly since the last time I was like, man, let keep on, keep going. You're fine. Right. It was barely a thing. And this time it was such a big thing. I wasn't prepared for it, which I'm not sure anyone can be, mm-hmm. but I also didn't give myself time to wrestle with the issues. Well, to give myself time to physically recover, to think, you know, hopefully no one else will have to deal with something like this in the middle of a pandemic, but I just, I didn't give myself time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also going to give advice for going through something where you're a step away from the crisis, but very, very close to the crisis in your world, we've had to deal with this going through your cancer experience Mm -hmm. is um, I'm going to say for anyone who loves someone who's going through a crisis or is going through that crisis, really rely on the ring theory of comfort, which means the person who's going through the crisis is at the center of the ring. And each person who is attached to that person is a ring outside of that. So for example, she'll, she is going through a crisis of her cancer surgery, then Justin and your kids would be, or and probably me, right. And Dawn would be the ring immediately outside of that. Then, you know, your other friends and family and cousins are the rings, the concentric circles moving out from that. I will say, do not rely on the person in the mint in the middle or on a closer ring to comfort you. Yeah, I do think do not do that. You dump out, you comfort in. Dump out, yeah. support in. Exactly. Do not rely on the person. Like I wouldn't expect Brian to to rely on me to comfort him about what you're going through. I dump out on him. He supports and comforts comforts me it is the person who is in crisis or the person who is grieving should not have to comfort the people on the outside rings and I'm very very I feel very strongly about this yeah and I know you do but as someone who was just on a ring outside of you I saw it happening and I got real mad with a lot of people (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was I mean that was tough and it you know continued for a little bit after that even which is um you know there are people who couldn't were so upset about what I had gone through that they couldn't keep it to themselves or that they that I would say you know something would happen and they would you know push it push their feelings back onto me. Exactly. And then you had to, what I saw was because people, and this is going back to the anger shield thing, people are so used to you shielding them that then they're like, well, now this has to do with you. You should shield me. Yeah. But not when you're at the center of the ring. That yeah. do not do that. That's good advice. Yeah. For As you all. like to say, that's good <laughs> advice for us all. Um, last question is, yeah. um, give us, uh, 
and you have to come up with one that we haven't talked about yet because I know we've talked about our Familect a lot but we do have a form of Familect oh my god or an example of your Familect or something with me or is there something with well it's so hard because first of all I'm talking to you right so I'm like so we have 43 years of 42 two let's say I didn't start right in the first year okay let's say 42 years of family life to think about. Um, And then it's like with my kids and my husband and like your kid and your husband. And it's just so much that it's like almost overwhelming. Right. Where you're like, you're like frozen and like, oh my God, I have nothing. We don't say anything. (laughs) Which on the other hand, I'm like, could we just go back and like cut clips from every other (laughs) Right. thing we've ever done right well I think one thing that uh you point out which I think is really funny is part of like it's part of like my speech that you always pick up on it's like <laughs> I'm always like what two things right I'm always like this that and the third thing yes right yeah of of like etc that's how like that, that means that means etc etc yeah. this that and the third thing like um, there's a <laughs> bunch of stuff that comes after this and then also my my tendency to when I'm talking about big numbers, I'm like 10 billion. Like I just go to like the most ridiculously high number ever. But it's not, but it's not a made up number. You won't no. say like, oh, like gazillions and gazillions. No. You'll use like a billion or 10 billion. <laughs> right. And it's always like you, you'll go like, yeah, I talked to like a billion people. Right. And then, but the funny part is I will always stop and go, that's a lot of people. Like I, <laughs> that's my then response that's our shtick. Yeah, that's I would say shtick. that is definitely that's yes. a podcast fam like, right? That's definitely yes. here because like you don't do that in the when we are like at dinner or in whatever. In life, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But um, it's like, yeah. And I will never I have not let one go. I've cut them out. Yes. Or I won't I'll like edit it out, but I'll always be like that's a lot of breakfast or whatever. <laughs> like every time yes. you say a billion something, I have to comment about that's a big number. Yes. The ongoing nickname for me in the house is Mominge. Okay. Because we were playing a video game where you had to like type in your name. And so I wanted to type in the momming guest, like the most momming. <laughs> oh, the momming guest. Yeah. Yeah. But it got cut. The S and T got <laughs> cut off because there's a character limit. And so instead of saying the momming guest, it said the momminge. So it wasn't <laughs> even like momming. M-O-M-M-I-N-G-E. <laughs> the momminge. Momminge. That's and so good. that's part of the family act, which is I'm Mominge. I could do a deep dive into various things that came out of our childhood, but we will not oh go my God. there. We have plenty of opportunities. Yes, I know. Well, I love you. And I it goes without too. saying that I'm glad you're still here. Obviously, mm-hmm. I'm very grateful. And I have been very angry about what you had to go through. And it was scary for me, right? Like it, as, oh, yeah. as a someone... But I was on an outside ring, so I tried to dump out. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, thank you for sitting in that very, that's a hard space to, to sit and remember and feel all those emotions. So I think um, admitting that you have, like, that mental well-being is not just about serotonin and dopamine and... Yeah neurons firing right like yes there are there are mental health challenges and mental illness that has all to do with that 
but these everyday things affect our mental outlook and our mental well-being and sometimes it's just not easy oh yeah processing it is is part of the plan right yeah I think you know like you said there's there's mental illness which goes on the scale of like you know small to huge um but then there's just everyday mental health and and identity is a big part of that right and having feeling like your pieces fit together is is huge and it's so destabilizing when you don't feel you know when you're like this none of this makes sense to me anymore and then it takes work to put it back together absolutely and you're doing the work and i'm really really proud of you i always have been and i still am i love you mucho much mcgee i love you too keep that in that's part of our family yes absolutely we'll explain that next time all right i love you all right bye bye